Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy and the beloved, the Lord Jesus. In him, we have forgiveness of sins. We thank you, O Lord, that you've regenerated our hearts and our minds, that we would be ready to hear your word. And as sheep before the shepherd, hear the shepherd's voice. We pray, O God, that you would aid us in hearing the word this morning, and that you would aid me in preaching the word this morning, that the preaching and the hearing would be done to your glory, for your glory, and for our good, O Lord, that we would be further sanctified by it. We ask, Almighty God, that you would attend unto us, attend to our mind and heart through the power of the Holy Spirit, and we so pray that you would please be gracious in sending your Holy Spirit to us, that we would have more of him, even at this particular time, that not only the unction of the Spirit would be here, but that he would aid us in our mind, that we would hear things and understand things clearly, hearing your voice and your word. We so ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I would ask you to turn your Bibles to (coughs) Jeremiah chapter 7, which is another one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. Jeremiah chapter 7. And we're going to be reading verses 1 through 4. The scriptures read, The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Stand in the gate of the Lord's house, and proclaim there this word, and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you of Judah, who enter in at the gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your doings, and I will cause you to dwell in this place. Do not trust in these lying words, saying, The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. Such is the reading of God's word. In dealing with this particular text, in dealing with what we actually talked about last week in comparison, this is going to be set in the context of 20 years after Josiah's reforms. 20 years later, roughly. 20 years after Josiah had done a thorough cleansing of the land. The king in the foreign country, the foreign power of Babylon is Nebuchadnezzar. And in Judah, the puppet king that's set up is Zedekiah, or his Hebrew, Madaniah. How that actually came about was, after Josiah died, his son, Jehoahaz, reigned. He was imprisoned by Pharaoh Necho, but he did evil in the eyes of the Lord and then died. So think about this. Josiah's firstborn son did evil in the eyes of the Lord and he died. And Jehoiakim, Josiah's other son, reigned. And then he did evil 
in the eyes of the Lord, and then he died, and then Jehoiachin is taken captive by Nebuchadnezzar, and instead his uncle, Madaniah, is made into a puppet king, and Nebuchadnezzar changed his name to Zedekiah. And so here's the context. All of this evil in the eyes of the Lord, this puppet king is set up, Nebuchadnezzar is besieging the people of God, and Jeremiah comes with a message of impending judgment. You remember that God told Josiah that even regardless of his reforms, the judgment was coming. God's promise of the coming judgment is all through the previous chapters, even up until chapter 7 here. And God tells Judah that Judah is in it for worse than her sister Israel, whom God has already judged. Jeremiah even gives the warning using Israel as an example. If you don't repent, it's going to be even worse for you in comparison to what happened to Israel. Well, the false prophets during this time were of no help. Jeremiah chapter 2 verse 8 was talking that they were sacrificing to Baal. Jeremiah 2.8 says, The priests did not say, Where is the Lord? And those who handled the law did not know me. The rulers also transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and walked after things that do not profit. They were basically utilizing what they thought was right and good. But their priests were wicked. They didn't know the law. They didn't know God. And they were prophesying by Baal. In Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 13, God says that these prophets are blowhards, windbags. Jeremiah 5.13 says, And the prophets become wind, for the word is not in them. Thus shall it be done to them. And instead, there's a little glimmer that God desires that he would send forth feeders who actually feed his people with truth. As in Jeremiah 3.15, I will send you pastors or feeders after my own heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. So he's going to send them the heralds of truth. But right now, things aren't looking too good. They've fallen horribly into apostasy. The false prophets are prophesying falsely. They're sacrificing to Baal. The king is a puppet king. God's judgment is coming upon them. And here, in the context of all of this, Jeremiah stands up in the temple and prophesies. Let's consider his exhortation in chapter 7, verses 1 through 4. It begins, the word of the Lord, or the word of Yahweh, which is typical in terms of when the prophet comes and he's ready to say something, God wants him to speak, that's what's said. Josiah had conformed to the word of God in the book of the law. Here, God makes a specific declaration through his prophet to deal with the abuses that emerge as a result of living carelessly under those previous reforms. Think about it. Josiah had set these previous reforms up and the people just simply didn't heed them. They did what they wanted to do and thus they lived carelessly before God's ordained means of grace. The word of the Lord is coming because after Josiah's reforms, the people went back whoring after other gods and idols and false prophets and false teachings and, and the like. 
God tells Jeremiah to stand in the gate. Do you remember where Josiah stood? He stood at the pillar of the temple, at the place of authority. Here, Jeremiah stands in the gate where all the people are coming. And he brings the prophetic word to, interestingly enough, the worshippers. Right? The people are coming to worship. Stand in the gate of the Lord's house, in Yahweh's house. Literally, the word says, take your stand or be planted there. And it's interesting that he didn't say, stand in the gate of the temple. didn't say that. He said, stand in the gate of Yahweh's house. Or Yahweh's habitation, where God is. Remember, the temple is where God is. False prophets don't have a problem voicing their opinion in the temple. They're all over the place doing all sorts of crazy things. God wants his prophet to stand in his house in the place where all will hear and proclaim his word. A lot of people were coming. Possibly this could have been around one of the feast times. Lots of worshippers were coming. And so God tells Jeremiah, there, proclaim there the word. To proclaim, or to read aloud, or to be summoned by God's voice. And the word there is, is an interesting word, which means matter or case. As if God had an airtight case against their idolatry, and Jeremiah was coming sort of as a lawyer to stand before God's house and proclaim it to them. Remember, previously, the generation before, they covenanted with God before the temple. Remember, with Josiah, that's what they did. To uphold the book of the law. Their children forgot the covenant. Maybe their parents became careless. They didn't teach it to them. In any case, God's airtight case was to demonstrate the people's sin and to call them to repent. And so he is to stand there and proclaim there the word to all the worshippers that enter into the gates to worship the Lord. Now, were they there to do what the Lord commanded? They were going to worship. They were coming. They were worshipping. But they were not worshipping rightly. And so we see the plague of being religious without having or abiding by the truth which these people were doing. They did what they wanted to do in church, not what God wanted them to do at church. Big difference. To go and do what they wanted, or how they wanted, or what they thought was right, rather than what God so desired them to do. And the phrase, worship the Lord, it's common throughout the scripture. But without a right aim, or right doctrine, or right heart, such worship is utterly meaningless. The focus is on the people collectively, but the message is being delivered to the individuals coming to worship. This is a public call to the people of God to amend their own lives so that each person would then be part of the collective whole, the covenant. So there's an individual element to all of this, as such as in the case of Achan. Remember Achan? Right, for a little bit of gold, little, little clo- a cloak that he wanted, he took, stuck some money in his pocket. He brought sin to the whole camp. He individually brought that sin. There's sin in the camp. Here, with the people, God is calling the individual worshippers to amend their lives and their ways. 
God had already told Jeremiah in chapter 6 and verse 20, To what purpose cometh there to me incense from Sheba and the sweet cane from far country? Your burnt offerings are not acceptable, nor your sacrifices sweet unto me. So even though the individuals were coming to worship, those who were coming to worship were not coming rightly. And so God calls them to repent. He says, amend your ways and your doings. And literally, it means to, to deal rightly or to do good, to do what is well, to do what is right, to work righteousness. The case is exemplified in the failure to keep God's law by God basically telling them, do what you said you were going to do. Because you had said that you were going to uphold the book of the law and you aren't. They had sacrificed to false gods. Even the rulers of the nation, both kings and the prophets, had led them astray. And God says, if you amend your ways and your doings, I will cause you to dwell in this place. Dwelling in the habitation of God. The meaning is to settle there, to be comfortable, like when you sit in a comfortable chair. The meaning is to have them settle down and be established. But the promise that's given them, that he will cause them to dwell there, is only set upon the reality that they amend their ways and their doings. So what does he tell them? He says, trust ye not in lying words. The specifics of repentance. It wasn't that he just said, listen, your lives are bad. Thus, fix them. Instead, he got very specific. He said, this is what I don't want you to do. I don't want you to trust in lying words. God didn't t uh, simply tell them to do good, but was specific about what they should do. He was pointing out a specific problem they had. Literally, to place confidence in. Don't place your confidence in these lying words. Even more literally, for this passage, the idea is surrounding living carelessly. Don't carelessly live or live carelessly about listening to these lying words. And so God gives them the opportunity to live well before him, but by trusting in lying words, they were living carelessly before him. And listen to what they were saying saying, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. That's what they were saying. Now remember, God's rebuking them. He's telling them to amend their ways. He tells them not to trust in these words. Three times, temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, temple of the Lord. These, literally. The translation, are these, isn't actually theirs. Better to say these. Look, temple of the Lord, temple of these. But the repetition is placed as an interpretive help. Why three times? Well, there are a couple of reasons. One is that it's by exclamation. Other places where this occurs uh, in the positive is like in Genesis 1 that we read last week. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. There was evening, and there was morning the second day, and so on. It's a repetitive help. It's an exclamation. Or in Isaiah 6, where it says, holy, holy, holy. And there's a point to that. It's not that God, God is holy or holy, holy, but that he's holy, holy, holy. It's repetitive. Here, it's an exclamation in that way. But also, it's referring most likely to the three tiers of the temple. The court, the holy place, and the holy of holies. 
It's a poetic use of the means of grace hypocritically explained. They so trusted in this that they had the temple. They forgot the words of God who lived in the temple. They forgot God himself. And instead, they lived carelessly before the means of grace that they had, which is the temple. And instead, they trusted that just because they had the temple, everything was okay. But true biblical reformation was basically jettisoned from the life of Israel. And instead, they trusted in a lie. Trust ye not in lying words. They believed that since God was symbolically in their midst, in the temple, right? That's where God has his name. That's what he said. So thus, they were safe. They were the chosen people, the holy nation. We have the forgiveness of sins. We have Yom Kippur. We have the Day of Atonement. God says, don't trust in those lying words in that way. Don't trust that. Because it's a lie. It's hypocrisy. It's hypocritical thinking. And so what does God do? God has the temple pillaged. Then he has the temple destroyed. He gave them two visual warnings, the reality of their transgression at two different times over a period of years. They misused the means of grace, the temple. This was their only hope of atonement. Their atonement was made at the temple. And they used it as one means instead of the only means. More of a heritage instead of actual saving means of grace. They were blatant idolaters. They were sacrificing to Baal and they put up the high places again. They were worshipping other gods. The temple was just one of the means that they used for their own benefit, or they thought so. The king had burned the word of God written down by Jeremiah. That is especially significant of the signs of their time. They did what they thought was right in their own eyes. And thus, you see we have Jeremiah's warning to them as a result of their hypocrisy and their blatant idolatry. And then we have Secondly, we've just looked at the text. Let's look at the doctrine coming out of the text. Careless living before the means of grace, which is really just outward ritual at expense of the word of God, but careless living before the means of grace will never maintain or advance inward reformation. Careless living before the means of grace will never maintain or advance inward, real, true, biblical reformation. And really, it doesn't matter who we talk to. It could apply both to the saved and the lost. There's obviously always some benefit to the redeemed elect, the remnant according to grace that remains, though it is even more particular to the lost because they seem to enjoy a form of godliness and deny its power. For instance, going to church is good, but it can be done in a bad way if it's monotonous or it's just done as a result of duty. But even with the redeemed elect, they can be dissuaded to fall into religious lethargy. 
be lazy, live carelessly before God's ordained means of grace. Theologically, this careless living is called apostasy, or even backsliding, as you've heard the term. Because the Christian, he only has two modes. He is either advancing in the things of God, or he is backsliding in the things of God. Those are the only modes he has. There aren't any other modes. There's no neutral. Practically, this is called living carelessly when we aren't advancing in the things of God. How might one define careless living? Well, the word live means a state of being. So-and-so lives like a king that conjures up ideas of lavish living. So-and-so is living recklessly that conjures up ideas of an accident waiting to happen. The idea to live means to exist or to breathe, literally. To live in a certain way. Carelessly is a reckless disposition of apathy. The doctor was careless while operating on the person's brain. But your imaginations run with that. Certain pictures come to mind. The driver carelessly switched lanes into oncoming traffic. Careless actions of any kind demonstrate a lethargic apathy, an uncaring attitude. Why do I have to do this again? Kind of a rote attitude toward a given task. A mistake. Living carelessly. How might one define the means of grace? Remember, we're talking about living carelessly before the means of grace. Well, the means of grace are those ordained means which God defines as ways that sinners are to approach Him to receive grace. Remember, as God defines, not as man defines or as man so desires, but as God does. God says that this is what you are to do, and you will receive saving grace or sanctifying grace as a result of X, Y, and Z. The means of grace are set really in two modes. In mode number one, we're talking about saving grace that surrounds the gospel of Jesus Christ. People receive saving grace when they are saved and regenerated by the Holy Spirit. But there's also mode number two, sanctifying grace. But that surrounds the mortification of sin and the vivification of the new man. The sanctifying power that goes into the new man and makes him better. Kills sin and builds up grace in him. The new creation becomes, so to speak, newer. The means of grace surrounds God's will in how men are saved and how saved men are sanctified to become more like Jesus Christ according to holiness. The only manner whereby men are saved or sanctified is in and through the Messiah, Jesus Christ. That which points to or directly communicates the way of salvation. That's how men are sanctified. That's how men are saved. God gives grace in Jesus Christ, in the Messiah. Whether we're in the Old Testament worshiping at the temple, or whether we're in the New Testament worshiping here together as a body, 
It's only through Christ that grace is communicated. And so the ordinance of God are it. There are no others. It's only through the grace of Christ in the ordained means that men can either be saved or sanctified. There was no, for example, temple number two in another city that they could go to, or three, or four, or five. There's only one temple. They had to go to that temple, and they had to do something at that temple. That was it. What are the means of grace? Well, it's not just a duty that's performed. It's not magic, that once we do a particular duty, we're suddenly zapped. Not just reading the Bible and threading the words through our eyes. There is a power element to it. And that is the Holy Spirit. The instrumental cause of the means of grace is the operation of the Spirit of God. The operation of the Holy Spirit. Centered around Jesus Christ and His death and His resurrection. And enlightening that to our minds and heart in every ordinance we do. That is what grace is. In the Old Testament, before the actual death of Christ in time, this properly belonged to the sacrificial system in the temple. They were visual word pictures set before the eyes of the people for certain ideas to be communicated to them. They were performed by the priests for the covenanted community. By faith, men trusted in what God had given them as the means to point towards the coming of the Messiah. And so we had types and shadows under the old dispensation. And then when Christ comes, we have those fulfilled and realized. After the death of Christ, this points back to what the Messiah fulfilled and accomplished for the covenanted community of the people of God. But the means of grace are found primarily as it has always been in the Word of God. And the application of the Word of God is always around the Word of God. In theology, when we use the term the means of grace, that surrounds particularly sacramental theology. The means of grace being communicated to the believer by faith as a result of things like the Lord's Supper. But the means of grace are always found primarily surrounding the communication of the Word of God in some way to the believer. God's self-revelation in the Bible is a means of grace. Prayer, which is really taking the scriptures and giving them back to God again in the form of a prayer, that is a means of grace. Corporate worship in all its elements, where it's the call to worship, the prayer, tithing, the singing of psalms with grace in the heart, the sacraments, the preaching of the word, all of this is the means of grace. Baptism and the Lord's Supper, a means of grace. Experimental preaching, expository preaching is means of grace. The means of grace communicate the realities found in the Word of God through Jesus Christ to the people of God. For grace is only found in Jesus. Just as God had given the Israelites the temple, so he gives men today the ordained means of grace seen in the same preaching of the word. But still, for some reason, men still live carelessly in light of it. Of all that surrounds them by the means of grace, all of these things I just mentioned, still people live carelessly. 
unregenerate men without Jesus Christ, without the Messiah, always live carelessly before the means of grace, which is exactly what many of the Israelites were doing. False prophets are not true believers. They were prophesying wrongly. As the text primarily demonstrates, men assume that because they have the means of grace, that they'll be saved. They simply assume that. That's living carelessly before the means of grace, and it's utter folly. And probably one of the greatest of satanic attacks on the blinded mind of men. Some form of being religious. Some form of religiosity. Some form of duty, some attachment to the things of God in no way, in no way qualifies a person as redeemed by him. Just because a man goes to church, just because he tithes, just because he prays, just because he reads his Bible, that suddenly doesn't give him an instantaneous ticket to heaven. It doesn't give him an instantaneous acceptability before God. Possession of the means does not render a man eligible to obtain the grace that the means offers. Think about verse 4. We've got the temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. These. We have them. We're okay. Just because a man may buy a Bible in Barnes and Noble does not mean that that gives him that instantaneous ticket doesn't make him saved automatically by having in his possession the means of grace. God must inwardly and effectually qualify those means in the hearts of men. Otherwise, men will always cry out the temple of the Lord. Unless a man is born again, he cannot perceive the things of the kingdom of God. He cannot perceive the kingdom of heaven. He can't understand it. What happens is they trust in the means and not the God of the means. That's living carelessly before the means of grace. They don't listen to the words, trust ye not, in lying words. Because they think that by having it, it's okay. They trust in the possibility of the spiritual reality. And then it becomes carnal, and it becomes wicked, and it discards the truth of the means of grace. It becomes twisted knowledge by the fallen mind and carnal heart. And they take that which could be a means to salvation, and instead they strip it of its power. It becomes a duty that they achieve and that they perform, that they think is good. But it's just a duty. The spiritual means of grace is not there. It's not present because the Holy Spirit, the, the carnal medium, is, is what their Holy Spirit is, so to speak. They don't really have a regenerated heart. They have fallen consciences that think that just because they have the temple of the Lord, everything is good. Ultimately, these kinds of people become exceeding, exceedingly miserable because there is really nothing going on except for a form of carnal habit. They go to church. They go to church. They go to church. There's no transformation, no sanctification, no real attainment of a living relationship with God. No real worship, no real adoration of Christ. Think of these covenanted priests who had no real spiritual life or vigor. Here they were daily performing their duties in the temple and thinking because they had the temple of the Lord and they were doing what they thought was right, they were okay. 
They had form of godliness, but they denied its real power because they became its power. It was their duty. It was their habit. Many times they trust in false applications of knowledge. And the experience of those means never really comes around because all they have is a form of godliness denying its power. And that's living carelessly. The Jew knew what their duty was. They knew it had to be done in the temple. The meticulous obedience to the letter of the law, they had that down. But they didn't have the spirit of the law. They didn't have the Holy Spirit behind that law. What could the Jews have gained if after they had sacrificed in the temple, they had gone over to Baal and worshipped him there? What were they really gaining? Nothing. They just thought that all this religiosity would do them good in some way. Religious men may be exceedingly meticulous about their religiosity, but in doing so, they forfeit the means of grace actually. Somebody who's not saved in attending a church service, which is a great means of grace, could be exceedingly diligent to, to be on time and to take their seat and participate thoroughly in song and to take notes diligently and not miss one iota of the sermon and pay attention, while all the while they miss the entire means of grace. Christless men live carelessly before God in that way. Yet, at the same time, sometimes, the redeemed elect live carelessly before the means of grace. And there are four ways that we do that as well. Now, I want to make a notation. This is a qualifier. Qualified by the sanctifying effect, not the saving effect, for the redeemed elect. Christ has already saved these people. But we're talking about sanctification when we're talking about the redeemed elect. So here's the first. The redeemed elect live carelessly before the means of grace. Because they have the means of grace, they believe they are automatically sanctified. Not saved, sanctified. Not only are the means of grace accessible, but also they have been enlightened to realize this and know this. Saved Israelites, according to God's grace, knew that God wanted them to go to the temple to worship in a certain manner. That's what he wanted from them. But if they didn't worship the law of their hearts, it was in vain. It's not just a duty, there must be more involved. It can't be that the redeemed elect just come to church... It's not that they're just sanctified by attending church. Something more has to happen. Let me give you an example. Let's imagine that a husband decided on his way home from work that he would buy his wife some chocolates and some flowers. And so he goes out and he does so. And he buys her chocolates and flowers. And instead of walking in through the front door and saying, Honey, I'm home. He knocks on the front door, she comes, answers the door, and there, she, there he is. She's presented with the flowers and the candy, and he gives them to her and gives her a kiss on the cheek. And she said, oh, honey, this is so wonderful. Thank you so much for doing that. And the husband say, no, 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 it's my duty to do so. You see, by just making it a duty, she take those flowers and chocolates and toss them in the trash. It doesn't mean anything if it's just a duty. If it's just that he had to go out and do it because it's his duty to do so. 
by neglecting the means of sanctifying grace. The people of God really know that morning devotions will be a help to their souls. It will edify them and strengthen them. It happened to them before. They've been strengthened before. But even though they know that they might be helped by it, sometimes still they neglect it. It's the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man that avails much. But what about the lukewarm, lazy prayer? Or are they engaged in the one-minute devotions because some is better than none, right? Some is better than none. This is living carelessly, doing things as a duty. We're too tired is often a hindrance for devotions. For prayer meeting, for family devotions, reading their Bible, studying, memorizing verses. Too busy is often a hindrance for the same. They're not automatically sanctified by having those things and doing those things. And even backsliding to a great degree. Because remember, the people of God before the temple... They backslid. They lived carelessly, even though they had those things. Here's the second. They look at the means as a duty, and not as a means to reach their blessed Savior. To use just one example. Husband and wife are going to spend the night apart. Husband has to go off on a business trip. And he writes a letter and sends the letter to his wife. Five or six or ten pages long, right? The first time they're going to be away. That letter and the emotions expressed in it, the desire and even the passion in it, it's being written, create a state of eager expectation in meeting again. But... When Christians read their Bible, oftentimes it's like drudgery. Well, in the same way that the husband's letter to the wife is a love letter, so the Bible to us is also God's love letter to us. It's Christ's love letter to us. How could it be drudgery? The Christians shouldn't think of their Bible reading as drudgery. That would be living carelessly. Careless living will never maintain spiritual vigor. It will never increase or advance sanctification. They should be looking at all of the means of grace as a elevator up to heaven, to go up to heaven for a while and to be with Christ. Not just as a duty, things they're supposed to do on Sunday or things they're supposed to do in the morning. That's careless living. Thirdly, if they do utilize some of the means of grace, they are content with being a little sanctified. Just a little sanctified. Enough to keep them going but not growing, or so they think. What kind of individual reformation of mind and heart is God after? Is he content with a little sanctification in his people? Do you think that a little worship is sanctifying? The Israelites had at least a little sanctification in this regard. But God says that they were trusting in lying words. God says that if the Christian becomes serious about the means he has given them, that he'll cause them to dwell or to be established in those things. See, Christ takes the serious Christian seriously. And he will give them more power more love, more of the Holy Spirit. 
those Christians that have a desire to live wholeheartedly before Christ will be, by promise, blessed by God to live in such a manner. But you can't be content with just a little. After a single taste of such help, they would never settle for being just a little sanctified. By oftentimes, the redeemed elect do that. We must remember that God sees living carelessly before his means of grace as hypocrisy. Some of those things later in the chapter that that we read of in chapter 7 in Jeremiah are simply a careless attitude towards the law of God. They aren't judging rightly. They're oppressing the stranger, the fatherless, the widow. They're committing idolatry. They're stealing. There's murder. There's uh, adultery. There's lying. You can't do this and then come into the house of the Lord and say, God is my God. God won't let that. God says that you can't do that. God says that by doing that, people are just saying, the temple of the Lord. We have these things and thus we're okay. Inward reformation. I mean, forget corporate reformation at this point. Forget Josiah. Forget the covenanted people. Just inward reformation of the individual will never happen when people live carelessly before God. They can't maintain their spiritual level. And they can't advance in it. You can't mix going backwards in personal reformation with going forward in it. There's no mix. You're either going one way or you're going the other. You're either going forward or you're going backward. There's never neutrality. There's never coasting. There's never, well, you know, things are just monotonous right now. I'm kind of stale. There's never that. It's either forward or it's backward. It's never in between. God will not bless careless living or those who simply cry out, we have church. Same thing as saying, the temple of the Lord. We have prayer. We have Bible reading. We witness every now and then. No, God says one must amend their ways. Then God will cause them to dwell or be established. Careless living before the means of grace will never maintain and never advance inward reformation of the heart, soul, mind, and strength before Jesus. It'll never do it. Rather, it's going to hinder it. That's why it's called careless living. All of these things we have, and yet we live carelessly before it. Let's talk lastly about us. An exhortation specially for the Reformed Christian. And this verse, the temple of the Lord. If you can think of one person in the Bible who was exposed to the means of grace more than anybody else ever, and threw it all away, who might that be? There are probably a few examples you could think of. A few choices. I personally would pick Judas. Think about it. Judas sat with Jesus. Judas was chosen by Christ to be an apostle. Judas saw all of his miracles. Judas heard all of Christ's sermons. How closer to the means of grace can you be? Here is the eternal word of God standing before you. And yet... Judas lived utterly carelessly. Christ says it's even better, it would have been better if he had not been born. 
That's how utterly careless he lived before God's ordained means of grace. With the Jews, it wasn't until 583 years later, from the time of Jeremiah 7, that the Jews would have it when Jesus Christ was born, and even then, they abused him. He is the means. He is grace embodied. The means that they'd be saved. And they killed him. They abused God's fullest expression of his love and grace. God prepared a banquet for them in Christ. And they, they just kept crying out. Temple of the Lord. We like our temple better than yours, God. Jesus tabernacled, templed, so to speak, among men. And yet, they wanted their physical temple instead. We like what we do better than what God desires for us. Religious people have a tendency to abuse the means of grace. And thus, for those who are Reformed Christians especially, Reformed, covenanted, Presbyterian Christians, with all the wealth of knowledge that we have, and that's at our fingertips, with all the heritage that we have in the Reformed faith, with all the books and all the sermons we have, and the ability today, especially, to tap into it, how could we ever become ignorant towards the means of sanctifying grace? What knowledge we have. I mean, I believe that the Reformed tradition has the purest expression, the gospel, the biblical gospel, on the earth in any age. It's the same gospel that Augustine preached, the same gospel in predestinating, electing grace that Thomas Aquinas preached. It's the same gospel that Calvin preached and Luther preached and Zwingli preached. It's the same gospel that Edwards preached and the Puritans preached. That's why so many people today link together the idea of the doctrines of grace with that which is reformed. They think because they have the doctrines of grace they are, i.e., reformed. We have the pure, unadulterated gospel as reformed believers by God's grace. It's right in front of us with all of its means. And God has gifted the minds of the greatest preachers, philosophers, and theologians in history. And the consensus of all of their teachings, the sound doctrine, is the doctrines of grace that we have. That in turn spawned some of the the greatest writings ever penned and the greatest sermons that were ever preached, ever. Every revival in the history of the church, every single revival ever was Calvinistic. The Catholics have never had a revival. The Arminians have never had a revival. All of the revivals surrounded the pure gospel. Then the question arises, why are we not spiritual giants? Look at what we've got. Why do we need to look back in history to find spiritual giants, the people who would we say, well, these guys didn't live careless. They lived holy. Why do we have to look back in history? Why can't we look in our church for those who are spiritual giants? If we don't take the time to immerse ourselves the limited time we have, we only have a limited time, right? Scriptures tell us that we should redeem the time. We should study the Bible. We should be mining its riches and then putting that study into action in our life and worship. If we don't do that, it's living carelessly. How could we ever be tired of the means by which Jesus would give us the ability to become more like him? 
Isn't that our first priority? With the neglect of those means of grace comes sin. Because we as the reformed of God's church, who hold the word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ in its purest expression, have this tendency to shout out, I'm a Calvinist, I'm reformed, I'm Presbyterian. Why is it that so many people see those people, the elect, us, as the frozen chosen? Why is that everywhere? Why do people say that? It's because they have a knowledge, but they don't seem to have a tendency to share it openly or or to be as excited and evangelistic as the heretics out there. The Mormons are on their bicycles going door to door. The Arminians are handing out tracts saying Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. They're excited about their non-gospel. They have a zeal without knowledge, and yet the Reformed believers, the Reformed church, seem to have a problem sharing the means of grace that's right in front of them. Because the greatest abuse of the means of grace are by those who know the means best. The gospel is most carelessly believed by those who know it the best. Reformation theology can cause Christians to become like the Jews of old. We have the temple. I'm a Calvinist. It's the same thing. That's all good. It's good that that knowledge is there. It's good. But that doesn't ensure your growth in Christ. It's not going to maintain or advance your growth in Christ. Sanctification is only effectual by the operation of the Holy Spirit upon you while you are partaking of the means of grace with a whole heart. That's why God told them. He didn't tell them, get rid of the temple. He didn't say that. He said, amend your ways and your doings and I will establish you in this place. You have to walk in the Spirit, being empowered by the Spirit. True biblical reformation in your mind and heart as individual Christians will only happen by that. Mortification of sin, new life in the new man, day by day, is not one simply by knowledge. But knowledge that has been formed into practice and is ignited by the spiritual power of the Spirit of God. It's like the knowledge is gasoline and the Spirit is the fire that ignites it. And we can't ever find ourselves saying, church was okay today. That was nice. Bible study was okay. I read my Bible today. That was uh, was all right. I prayed today. It was a little dry. A red flag should raise up in our spiritual mind that alerts us to the impending danger of that situation. Saying prayer was okay is like saying the temple of the Lord. I just did what I was expected to do today. I got through it. But are we saddened at our lack of conform to who Christ is and what he desires of us? Saying I squeezed out devotions in my busy schedule this morning is the same as saying the temple of the Lord. I did what I was expected to do today. I got through it. Saying, well, you know, God understands that the spirit is willing and the flesh is weak. He knows, he knows that I'm a frame made of dust. He knows that. He's okay with my lazy attitude. 
But that's coming dangerously close to what Jeremiah said in reaction to that lazy attitude or that religiosity of temple worshippers who were content with being religious. They got through it. They did the sacrifices without taking hold of the means of grace with all of your heart, with all of your soul and all your strength, you live carelessly before God. That's what happens. We may in that manner have the kingdom of God's grace come very close to us, but it just doesn't come in us. It doesn't ultimately change us. So, the exhortation is to not be like these who lived carelessly before God's means of grace. We have His means of grace before us. And the sermon only expounded this morning this one text. Wasn't other things that I read. Just Jeremiah chapter 7 verses 1 to 4, especially verse 4. Because I want you to leave here with that echoing through your mind as one of the redeemed elect. As a reformed Christian, you fill in the blank. Trust ye not in lying words saying, I'm a Calvinist. I'm reformed. I have the temple. I have the temple. I have the temple. That's what they were saying. We all must stop living carelessly before the means of grace and hold them in high regard for true biblical reformation will never happen individually or inwardly. It will never maintain or advance. It will always send us backsliding and living carelessly before God. Do not trust in these lying words saying, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, these. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, may it be that you would forgive us. Forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from our unrighteousness that we might not simply say the temple of the Lord. But that true biblical reformation would really happen, O Lord. That it would happen inwardly in us as individuals and collectively, ultimately, as the covenant community of your grace. Let us not trust in lying words. Let us amend our ways. And this week, O oh Lord, let us begin to see more clearly how in various ways we might be living carelessly before you. Let us live before you in a way that exalts your majesty and that aids us and helps us to conform to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. That we might be more sanctified by the power of your Holy Spirit through the word. And we so ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, 
T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.